This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. In his four novels to date, Graham McRae Burnett has created a cryptic and compelling subgenre, false true crime. His second book, His Bloody Project, was a runaway hit, shortlisted for the prestigious Booker Prize and translated into over 20 languages. Now, his fourth, Case Study, which has recently been published in Canada, seems destined to equal, if not outperform it. In its pages, he intertwines the fictional biography of Collins Braithwaite, a radical 1960s psychotherapist, with the journal of a young woman who becomes a patient of Braithwaite's in the belief that he drove her sister to suicide. Suicide makes Miss Marples of us all, claims the young woman, who has adopted the name Rebecca in a nod to Daphne du Maurier. But, as fans of Graham McRae Burnett will know, His protagonists are never reliable narrators, and, like psychotherapists, it is up to his readers to tease out the truth in the stories that he presents to us. Before I introduce Graham, here's a clip of Serena Mantegi narrating the part of Rebecca in Case Study. I have decided to write down everything that happens, because I feel, I suppose, I may be putting myself in danger, and, if proved to be right a rare occurrence, admittedly, this notebook might serve as some kind of evidence. Regrettably, as will become clear, I have little talent for composition. As I read over my previous sentence, I do rather cringe. But if I dilly-dally over style, I fear I will never get anywhere. Miss Lyle, my English mistress, used to chide me for trying to cram too many thoughts into a single sentence. This, she said, was a sign of a disorderly mind. You must first decide what it is you wish to say, then express it in the plainest terms. That was her mantra, and though it is doubtless a good one, I can see that I have already failed. I have said that I may be putting myself in danger, but there I go, off on an irrelevant digression. Rather than beginning again, however, I shall press on. What matters here is substance rather than style, that these pages constitute a record of what is to occur. It may be that were my narrative too polished, it might lack credibility, that somehow the ring of truth lies in infelicity. In any case, I cannot follow Miss Lyle's advice, as I do not yet know what it is I wish to say. However, for the sake of anyone unfortunate enough to find themselves reading this, I will endeavour to be clear, to express myself in the plainest terms. In this spirit, I shall begin by stating the facts. The danger to which I have alluded comes in the person of Collins Braithwaite. You will have heard him described in the press as Britain's most dangerous man. This on account of his ideas about psychiatry. It is my belief, however, that it is not merely his ideas that are dangerous. I am convinced, you see, that Dr Braithwaite killed my sister Veronica. Graham, welcome to My Life in Books. Hi, Red. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. So, in Case Study, you present us with two unreliable protagonists. Firstly, Collins Braithwaite, a radical psychoanalyst who your alter ego, GMB, is writing a biography of. And secondly, Rebecca Smith from her supposedly rediscovered diary, Before we jump down the rabbit hole of metafiction that all that entails, could you start off just by introducing us to the characters? Firstly, Collins Braithwaite, who is very much a man in the mould of the author Colin Wilson or the playwright John Osborne or the radical psychotherapist R.D. Lang, all of whom appear next to him in the book. Um, Absolutely. I mean, Collins Braithwaite is a tremendously larger-than-life figure, a very charismatic character, Uh, something of a monster, actually. Um, He's a bully. I think he uses and manipulates people. But you're right, he comes out of that particular moment in the 
1950s and 1960s of the, the angry young men, the, the Colin Wilson, um, R.D. Lang, John Osborne that you mentioned, um, they all came from sort of working class or lower middle class backgrounds and kind of, they sort of had, there was a kind of an assault on the citadels of British culture at that time in literature. Um, and R.D. Lang uh, was a figure who kind of assaulted the the citadels of accepted practice in psychiatry. Collins Braithwaite sets himself up as something of a rival to Lang. Uh, he kind of takes on the arguments that Lang presents in his famous book, The Divided Self, um, a book that you know has a huge influence on case study. I mean, it's not really the case to say that Braithwaite is a psychoanalyst. He's a charlatan. Um, he sets himself up um, as a as a therapist, but he has no qualifications, and um, he gets himself into some kind of trouble later on in the book. Um, but he's very much part of the London uh, counterculture of the nineteen sixties. Yeah, he very much sets himself up as an outsider, such as. Uh... Colin Wilson describes in his book, The Outsider, and he uses his feelings of alienation to discomfort those around him and, and, and gain power over them. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. Uh, he finds himself in situations which aren't necessarily of his own making. He takes advantage of them. When he's at Oxford University, um, he certainly, he, he's one of these figures who people gather around, uh, partly because he's got this sort of personal charisma, but partly because they're also kind of scared of him. And so they want to have his approval. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't like to um, too much tell people what to make of the character. It's up to the reader. I mean, you, you've obviously you know, formed a judgment of the character and everybody who reads the book um, or any book forms the, their own uh, judgment of the, of the characters. And that, I always want that to remain a very open process. I'm not a writer who's prescriptive about how people should feel about the characters. I mean, when I was writing the character of Braithwaite, and he, you know, I felt like I was writing this kind of monstrous character. Um, but at the same time, as as I progressed through his story, I realised that the challenge to myself as a writer was to try to make myself feel something towards him, feel some kind of, not necessarily sympathy or empathy, but to feel that there was a, more of a complexity there. And I, I don't, it's, it's quite easy as a writer to create a character who's a complete monster. It's it's more of an achievement to create a character who um, people have complex feelings about. And, you know, once once the book goes out into the world, once any book or any piece of creative work goes out into the world, you realise that you're no longer in control of it. And one of the surprises for me since Case Study came out has been the number of uh, readers who've told me how much they like Collins Braithwaite. And um, these are invariably female readers who find that this kind of um, bad boy character to be rather attractive. Which I was like, I'm totally shocked by that. But, you know, that's <laughs> what, you know, I, I like the fact that the characters go out into the world and people engage with them on their own level. And that's why, as a writer, I never want to tell the reader what to think. We'll come back to the sympathising with the characters later in the discussion, but certainly the basis of Collins Braithwaite's PhD and, and his further thinking is that human beings are not a single persona, uh, as you say, they're not a fixed persona, they're a bundle of personas. and it, it, It's something he observes after having watched John Osborne's play as the lead actor switches from his on-stage persona into his relaxed-in-the-pub persona. And that sense of switching between different parts of your personality is something that clearly fascinates you and is something that we see in your other protagonist, Rebecca, who was also created a persona with which to confront Collins Braithwaite over her suspicions that he pushed her sister towards suicide. Yeah, I mean, the whole um, the whole concept of adopting different persona, personae, you know, is one that we find in R.D. Lang's book, The, the Divided Self. And that's a book, I reread the book before I embarked on writing case study. And, you know, it's a book that I relate to a great deal on a personal level. I think it's quite a commonplace idea that in different situations in our lives, we behave in different ways and to some extent have 
different persona. You know, a very simple example would be when when one is a teenager, one behaves in a very different way with one's friends uh, than you do when you're with your parents. So when your parents and your friends are in the same room, you you, you might experience moments of confusion or conflict because you don't know who to be. And um, when I was younger, in my sort of 20s, you know, I travelled around uh, quite a lot and lived in different places. And I always kind of liked the idea that when I arrived in a new place and met new people, nobody knew who I was. And so you could, to some extent, reinvent yourself. So all this stuff I do find very fascinating. And, you know, as you say, um, the the real central character of the book is actually the nameless protagonist who is the author of five notebooks, mm. which uh, make up most of the book. And as you say, uh, this young woman, she's in her mid-twenties, rather sort of upper middle class, but very repressed young woman, believes that Collins Braithwaite has driven her sister Veronica to suicide. And so she adopts this uh, persona of... Rebecca Smith in order to present herself as a patient to to Braithwaite and while the author of the notebooks whose name we never learn uh, she is as I say very repressed a rather snobbish character and also she's fascinated by sex but also terrified of it whereas uh, Rebecca Smith this persona she adopts is is altogether more worldly and um, more flirtatious and she allows um, the narrator to kind of exist in a way that she wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to. I mean, the very first time she tries on this persona, um, she says, oh, it was rather a lark being Rebecca. There's a kind of liberation for her in um, being this other person. And in terms of, as you mentioned, Braithwaite's kind of theoretical ideas about this, Braithwaite would say that the Rebecca persona is no less authentic or true than the narrator's original self, and that's his kind of that's his kind of beef with Lang. R. D. Lang always believed that there was a true self, and you shouldn't maybe um, drift too far from it. Whereas Braithwaite believes that all selves are true, all persona are equally true, and should be celebrated, and one shouldn't be favoured over another. Which is why. You mentioned the, the little episode in the pub where he sees this actor become himself again. Um, Braithwaite loves actors because actors are celebrated for being someone else. And the, the better they are at being someone else, the, the more we applaud. And the nameless protagonist who, who assumes the role of Rebecca is somebody who she discovers that through writing a fictional piece for Women's Weekly. So it's very much the adopting of a, of a new persona through fiction. And as you say, she comes to realise that, and we come to see, that the story is more important than the person telling it, which is very much a, a nod to the whole Roland Barthes death of an author type of theory that that we should be concentrating on on the text in front of us rather than in what Graham McRae Burnett or GMB is trying to tell us. Absolutely. I mean, uh, two things there. I mean, one, just to pick up on the last point, I'm a total aficionado of the Roland Barthes idea of the death of the author. And just as I say, you know, on a very simple level, I don't want to determine what the reader makes of the characters or how they interpret the story. And it to me, it's not important at all what my intentions might be. In fact, I try not to have intentions. Um, the, the the important relationship is that between the reader or the listener and the, the text. Um, and people have to make up their own minds. And as a as a reader myself, I don't care what the author is trying to say. I you know I want to engage with the the text myself. So yeah, I mean absolutely. And you know you mentioned the fact that our narrator has written she she is an aspiring writer of fiction herself so and to some extent that might uh, call into question the the truth or not of what she has written for us because we know she has kind of literary ambitions because she tells us that 
And she finds that persona of being a writer incredibly liberating. We actually see her her open up through the course of case study. And she's got a lot more elan. She's got a lot more of a joie de vivre in her persona of Rebecca than this rather, as you say, mousy, repressed girl who who we initially are introduced to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and she, as, as she writes, you know, as she progresses, uh, she's kind of writing these notebooks in real time. So, yeah, she finds that liberation and that this is, I suppose... Uh, the kind of progress of her character. And as the notebooks go on, there are five notebooks, we find that a, di- a kind of dialogue begins between the character's two persona, the real original narrator persona and the Rebecca. And sometimes when they go on a kind of date to the pub with this character called Tom, uh, handsome Tom, and, um, you know, um, Rebecca's all for it. You know, she's up for it. And she wants uh, the, the narrator persona not to ruin everything. And they, they sometimes kind of dialogue with each other. So there's there's actually a battle going on. So in a way, I suppose it's dramatising that um, Langian idea about the self and about persona. They're actually in dialogue with each other. But you're right. She has a lot more fun being this other person than she does being herself. Yeah, it's a classic sort of divided self, good angel on one shoulder, bad angel on the other. And it's very funny. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about very weighty topics here, but it is a very fun and funny book. And, And it lends itself brilliantly to the mystery genre because we've got Collins Braithwaite with his persona of angry young man and psychoanalyst trying to winkle out why Rebecca has created a persona to come and see him while she's trying to winkle out the truth of what he may or may not have said to her sister, assuming the sister exists at all. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you know, I find it a great book to talk about because it kind of goes off in all these different directions of unreliable narrators and the whole psychiatric sort of side of things. And the whole metafictional side of things. And I often, you know, during an event or a conversation at some point, I, I stop and say, actually, this, I think it's a really funny and entertaining book. And um, it, it, it can seem a little bit intimidating, I think, if it's made to sound weighty. And I think these kind of weighty ideas are there in the book. But primarily, I want my books, all my books, to be sort of readable and accessible and I think you know from the feedback I've had about this book that it is that and I felt when I was writing it you know (laughs) it's definitely the funniest book I've written and the humor in the book comes I think from the 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 voice of the narrator because she's got this rather old-fashioned schoolgirlish vocabulary you know clots and ninnies oh I oh I dare say and she's very snarky and judgmental about other people, and um, she's wonderfully waspish. Yeah, waspish. She? She's yeah. Yeah, snarky, waspish, exactly. And so there's a lot of humour. Like she, for some reason, she doesn't like the Welsh, and there's a lot of humour to be had. So even even during the editing process, which is kind of normally very arduous, you know, there was still a few lines that I would find myself kind of chuckling at. So I, you know, it's kind of you want that balance between a humour and entertainment. And the, the kind of weighty ideas which are sort of sitting underneath. So rather than writing something theoretical about, you know, persona and these sort of psychological concepts that we've been talking about, I suppose you want them to feel illustrated by the behaviour of the characters rather than shoehorned in in a sort of heavy-handed way. And it makes a kind of three-sided detective mystery as well. You, you've got Rebecca and Collins Braithwaite and the reader all trying to sieve what may or may not be true and reach a diagnosis, reach a a conclusion which had me picking up the book all over again and restarting it as soon as I finished. My greatest desire for anyone reading the book is when they finally get to the final page, I just want them to go, what? What just happened? I need to read this again Uh, because, (laughs) you know, I want the ending to throw into question everything that's been read. Yeah, I mean, it's, it kind of sets out with quite a sort of simple premise. She wants to find out what happened to her sister. But as you say, we don't really know. Well, you said, does her sister even exist? 
Well, that's, that's a perfectly valid question because we know that our narrator is an aspiring writer of fiction. As she finds out uh, in her own account of this, she finds out about her sister because she reads a case study written by Collins Braithwaite about a woman called Dorothy who she believes to be her sister Veronica. Um, so we don't even know if Dorothy is Veronica, uh, although there are some similarities between these characters. But that's her interpretation. So there, there are various layers of things which we we don't know. Um, we can't test them and find out if they're true. Uh, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's very much for the reader to decide what has occurred. Um, I mean, and the ending of the book although to some extent it might be a sort of twist. To me, it's open to various interpretations, and I don't I don't want to close those interpretations uh, down for readers. I think that openness makes for a far better discussion in a kind of book group kind of situation because people can point to different aspects of the text. They can sort of sift through the evidence so that the reader becomes the detective um, or the member of the jury in his bloody project. With case study, I think, you know, the conversation would be about what characters existed, um, how much of what we've read is true. And both novels purport to be based on true stories. So, as promised, we will jump down the rabbit hole of metafiction that that creates after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844 844- one two two one 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 one. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week I'm in conversation with Graham McRae Burnett. Graham, you clearly revel in metafiction. Each of your four books has an authorial voice who claims to have, well, in his bloody project, have come across the records that form the basis of the book for case study. We can actually go to Goodreads and find a post by you saying that you've discovered and researching the life of Collins Braithwaite. And in your two French books, they actually purport to be by an author called Monsieur Brunet, which is a, a lovely anagram of your own surname. Well spotted. You clearly enjoy playing with your reader and hiding, lurking behind a false trueness. <laughs> is, is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I guess. So. I mean, it's funny, you know, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, all my books uh, thus far have had some kind of metafictional bracketing device, as you say. I present the two French detective novels as having been written by another author, and I am the translator of the work. So I am pretending that the the books were actually written by another author. The great surprise when um, my first book, The Disappearance of Adele Badeau, came out, for the great surprise for me was that, you know, some booksellers actually believed that it was a, a cult French novel. And we're selling it as such. And um, when I went, you know, went into some shops to sign copies and told them that, no, I actually wrote the book. And they were quite taken aback and felt that they'd been tricked. But ever since then, I've been totally fascinated by this idea that people can feel uh, that they're being tricked by these devices. I mean, only yesterday I did another interview about case study and the interviewer began by saying, so it's absolutely amazing that you were sent these notebooks. And I'm like, well, actually, that's just a fictional device. And she was kind of taken aback and I think a a little bit embarrassed. Uh, And again, she used the word, you tricked me. Of course, I'm not out to trick anybody, but because when we read any novel, we are tricking people. It's made up. But we, as readers, listeners, we invest in these characters who do not exist. And yet we um, we engage with them, we empathize with them, we feel angry with them. Um, our emotions are hopefully aroused by our relationship with these characters and their stories. But we know it's not true. And yet when I, I create these uh, metafictional devices and, and say that somebody else wrote this text, people feel tricked. And um, I'm kind of fascinated by that. I mean, it goes back to some extent with the disappearance of Adele Badeau and the accident on the A35, which is the other French detective novel. 
the, I think the original thing was that I actually felt that I was writing a translation because the characters were French and they would be speaking French to each other. So it seemed a kind of logical step to then say, this is a translation of a French novel. And then it seemed to me a logical step to create an author who had written it. And then the first book has a sort of biography of Raymond Bruni. But it's also going back to that Roland Barthes idea that of relating the meaning of the text to the author and to the author's life or the rejection of that uh, idea. So here I was creating a fictional author and I, as the translator and editor of the book, relate the the, the novel to the life of Raymond Brunet. Um, so I'm kind of playing with that whole ideas about authorship and meaning. With his bloody project and case study, it's very much embedded that these are novels written as found documents. And I describe how I found the documents, how they came into my possession and so on. These devices have been around since the very beginning of the novel. You know, Robinson Crusoe, um, the first novel in English, was originally published as a memoir by Robinson Crusoe. Daniel Defoe's name did not appear. Almost any 19th century novel uses letters and journals to tell the story and so on, and different modes of narration. You know, look at Dracula, for example. It's just a series of different people's journals. Wilkie Collins, The Moonstone, the first detective novel in English, is a series of narrations by different characters. And as you read each fresh narration, you come to doubt what you've read in the previous one. So these, these devices that I'm using, to me, are just, they're just the tools of the novelist's trade. And I can use them to hopefully engage the reader. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm not trying to fool anyone. I'm trying to get to that process of engagement whereby the, the reader is an active participant in the, the, the listening or reading experience. Yeah, they're very much the documents in the case. And that actually, they remind me, yeah, certainly of, of the Moonstone or the Woman in White, but also of those 1930s Dennis Wheatley case files oh, right. that you would get, like Murder Off Miami, uh -huh. where you were presented with all the evidence and you had to, to work out who done it. And what I love about what you do is that it doesn't just stop with the book. Adele Badeau prompted a short trailer for the supposed film that it had been based on. So it grows after the book. Yeah, that, that was a nice little um, incident. So I, in the afterward to, to the novel, I say that the book was adapted for the cinema by Claude Chabrol, the great French film director. And I did a little event um, with this this guy, um, Sean, who's, who runs a cinema club in Glasgow, where I read from the book and we showed an old Chabrol film. And actually, it was Sean who uh, made the, the trailer for the film. It's just an amalgam of clips from other French films, and it's very nicely done. But it's there on the internet. So if you Google the film of The Disappearance of Adele Badeau, you will come across this trailer. But I really quite like the idea that somehow... You know, you you referred to the, the blog post I'd written about finding Collins Braithwaite's book, which I wrote because in case study, I say that I had written a blog post, so I felt that it should exist. But so here we've got the novel kind of spills out a little bit beyond its pages. And I think, you know, these days that kind of mirrors the reading experience that some people have. I mean, I knew when I was writing case study, I knew that people would Google Collins Braithwaite because I write about him as if he's a real character. And in the book, he he meets and engages with real people. You mentioned Colin Wilson. Um, he, he meets Dirk Bogard. R.D. Lang is a character in the book. So I knew that people would Google Collins Braithwaite. And I think in the age of the internet, um, that is a part of the reading experience that you might seek to verify certain things by reference to the internet. And I was very amused to find that when I typed in Collins Braithwaite, the first thing that came up on my suggested Google searches was, was he a real person? Clearly, oh, really? an awful lot of people had uh, gone off and <laughs> done exactly that. I, I love the fact that Google is now uh, asking that question. <laughs> Uh, look, look at what you have created. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, one of the things that did actually surprise me when I first read his bloody project is that whilst it purports to be 
taken from a true memoir written by a young crofter in Scotland who has committed uh, a series of very grisly murders. The original spur for you to write the story was prompted by a real-life murder. So actually, your metafiction is kind of flipped on its back there. That's right, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the levels of um, truth and fiction are getting too complicated, um, even for me at this <laughs> point. Uh, yeah, so I came across a book uh, called, it was a brilliantly titled, I, Pierre Riviere, Having Slaughtered My Mother, My Sister and Brother. And this was a book about a French peasant called Pierre Riviere who had killed three members of his own family using agricultural tools. And the, But the remarkable thing about it was that while in prison, he wrote a memoir about the events leading up to these murders. And the book, which is edited by Michel Foucault, Foucault found um, the, these documents in the, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris or something and compiled this dossier um, of material, which includes witness statements from people who lived with Pierre Riviere, Riviere's own memoir, and also it also contains some academic articles and so on about the case. So the idea of a novel in this form of a kind of dossier was really the basis of his bloody project. That was the sort of starting point for the idea. My my mum comes from uh, Wester Ross in Scotland, the sort of northwest. The landscapes in Wester Ross are often uh, very barren. You know, it's it's not all sort of sentimental, pretty um, scenery that you get in other parts of Scotland. So I set the book there and created, you know, kind of mimicked the structure of the Pierre Riviere book. And again, going back to what we're saying, by having these different documents and different versions of events that are presented in his bloody project, I'm trying to uh, encourage the reader to uh, engage and play detective or play the member of the jury. The, the central question hanging over the book is really about the sanity of Roddy McRae, um, the young crofter you mentioned. Is he insane or was he just a malicious, unpleasant? Are his motives as he states them himself or did he have a, a darker, more sinister motive? And like Riviere, Roddy is remarkably eloquent for a man who brutally slaughtered some of his neighbours. But there is a charm that we, as the reader, cannot fail to be drawn in by. Uh, I mean, for the first uh, half of the book, when we're, we're immersed in Roddy's account, and I, as the author... I'm immersed in Roddy's account. I'm trying as much as I can to imagine how the world is for Roddy McRae. So I'm not standing outside judging him. I'm trying to un understand how he feels about the events which lead him to commit these murders. Because, you know, in the, in the story of the book, Roddy's family is being persecuted by this neighbour called uh, Lachlan Mackenzie. And um, so most readers reading the book when Roddy sets off along the village to kill Lachlan Mackenzie, most readers who I've talked to are like, on you go, Roddy, go, give him what he deserves. Yeah. It's only later when we discover who, who else he has murdered and in what manner he has injured them, we then come to doubt some of what Roddy has told us. Um, and we realise that he's omitted certain details in his account. Um, but I absolutely... I want the reader to have that kind of engagement you're talking about with the character, to empathise with the character. But as the book goes on, I want to make that more complex because here's a character who we've empathised or sympathised with, and yet we find out that he's done some really horrendous things. And I, I think that it creates a lot more ambivalence in the reader, and I think this is a more complicated relationship then that you then have with the character and the book and I think that's a lot more interesting than just a sort of good guy bad guy sort of scenario where everything is morally simplistic. I think with all your characters there is also an element of a mechanism having been set in train by the meeting of their flaws with an unexpected event and it sets them on a path they can no longer 
deviate from. And in some ways, that really reminded me of the existential books of Camus or Sartre, <laughs> the outsider, the flawed protagonist, almost caught in a in a kind of Greek tragedy like fate. And we spend a lot of time in their heads as they wriggle against their fate. Uh, well, I mean, you're you're really pushing my favourite buttons here. I mean, I am an absolute sort of un, unreconstructed existentialist and I have drunk very deeply on the sort of French existential literature of the mid-20th century, Sartre, Camus, Simenon, uh, often regarded as a detective novel. Simenon is the existential novelist par excellence, to use a, an appropriately French phrase. And in, in so many Simenon books, it's exactly as you describe a, a, a flawed protagonist encounters uh, an unexpected event or they take an action which then sets them on a path which they feel they cannot alter. And um, th this goes to the question of free will, agency. To what extent do we choose the path that we find ourselves on? Roddy himself uses the phrase, the chain of events which led him to commit these murders and he doesn't know does he go back to the moment where his mother and father met does he go back to the moment maybe two years previously where his mother has tragically died in childbirth at what point does the end become inevitable and I love the sense of inevitability that's why at the beginning of Roddy's memoir we know that he has committed some murders, so we know that what everything is leading up to. So there's a sense of um, inevitability about it, maybe a sense of dread, because you know it's not going to end well. And um, I'm trying to get to that sense of whether um, Roddy feels that he has any free will. Up in the Highlands, in the sort of old Presbyterian way, you know, there's this concept of providence, um, which in Scotland is sort of epitomised by the phrase, what's for you won't go by you. What is intended for you cannot be avoided. And um, the, in the Highlands, that, that was a very, very pervasive philosophy or way of thinking. And it still pertains, even although we live in a, it's a much more secular place now, it still, I think, imbues people's thinking. Back in the 19th century, people would not say, I will do this. They would, they would express the idea that they might hope to do it or hope that it will happen, but they could not themselves intend it. And this came from the teachings of the Presbyterian Church and so on. But to me, as a sort of 20th century, I say a 20th century because I haven't really properly entered the 21st century. Um, I take that idea of providence and relate it to the ideas that you mentioned in sort of French existentialism, which is all about the extent to which we exert free will over our own lives. A question I don't know the answer to. It also means that the authorial voice or the voice of the protagonist has to be a careful balancing act between the claustrophobia of a character feeling trapped and also being sympathetic. And I think the acid test of that is whether a book with those sort of existential roots can translate into an audiobook. I've yet to find a convincing audiobook version of L'Etranger by Camus, for instance. It's very interesting about L'Etranger because the, the narrational style of the book is so blank and emotionless, and that's the most striking thing about the book. So maybe it, it might be very challenging to read that text um, in any way that felt engaging because the, the style of the book is almost pushing you away with its lack of emotion. Well, at risk of uh, giving you a big head, I will say that I think you could probably have taught Camus a thing or two, because as we'll discover after the break, the audiobook versions of your novels are a tour de force. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with novelist Graham McRae Burnett. As we were discussing before the break, your characters often have flaws that make them stand at odds with the world around them, and being trapped inside their heads can be quite claustrophobic. So it's a very 
difficult balance to strike to make them sympathetic. And I think the acid test of this is how much we as audiobook listeners can respond to them, how well they translate to actually having voices projected to a reader. Do you have much to do with the selection of the narrators for your audiobooks? And is it something that has given you any pause for thought as to, well, I couldn't possibly let that narrator have Rebecca's voice. She just doesn't sound like that in my own head. I mean, well, first of all, in terms of the writing process, especially with case study, writing in the first person, the absolutely crucial thing was to get the voice of the character right, to find the vocabulary she uses. I drew on all these women's magazines from the 1960s to get this authentic vocabulary for the character. And the kind of rhythm, and she's kind of, she's kind of digressive and a bit silly. And I read everything I write aloud, maybe not in the first draft, but later on. And when I do events and so on, and I really like reading from case study, I really enjoy it um, in a way that my other books are maybe the style is a little bit different, but I feel it reads well. But I, I wouldn't say I consider it in terms of thinking about the future audiobook. I, think, I don't know what impact that would have on me as sitting at my, with my laptop. But I did get consulted about the, the readers of the two sections, the male reader um, of the Braithwaite sections and the female narrator of the, the Rebecca sections. And I got sent um, five audition tapes for the Rebecca sections, and they were all good. But um, there was one, Serena Mantegi, and as soon as I heard her voice, I was like, that's, that's Rebecca's voice. It was absolutely fantastic because that's what you dream of, that she is actually, she sounds to me as she does, the character does in her head. So it was totally perfect. She sounds straight off the pages of Women's Weekly, doesn't she? Exactly, absolutely. And she just had the intonation. She had the right level of poshness. It was perfect, perfect spot on. The difficulty with the, the male narrator, and this is absolutely not a criticism, but was because... Because I am the, me, Graham McRae Burnett, is the author and narrator of those sections, I I suppose I wanted somebody who sounded exactly like me. So it's much more difficult to find uh, somebody who sounds in my head like me. And also, when you write something, every sentence you write, if you either read it aloud or just sort of think of it in your head, you emphasize certain words and you have your own sort of pronunciations and so on. You have your own rhythm of reading. And any actor reading or narrating a text, they interpret the lines and emphasize them differently. So it's quite odd when people read your lines differently from how they sound in your head. Uh, so it's a little bit more difficult for me to choose. And I got, again, I got sent some tapes. There's, I mean, all, all superb. Um, one of them was like maybe pushed it too much to the comic and I wasn't so keen on that. But I think uh, Graham Rooney, who they chose, was definitely would have been the choice I would have made. Did it work for you? Yes. I mean, I thought, oh, yeah, Graham really has captured your intonation. I, I wondered if maybe you and he had a chat before he started the narration. No, no, not at all. I mean, I'd have been totally happy to have a discussion with any of the narrators, but I've never been involved in the production uh, side at all. I've, but I think it's a bit like when your work is translated, you have to respect the work of the translator. The translator interprets the work and then renders it into the language they're translating into. And similarly, the narrator of an audiobook, they're actors, they are interpreting the work. And I'm full of respect for people who can do that. And you have to let them interpret it in their own way. I certainly thought that Crawford Logan, the great radio mm. actor who you had narrating his bloody project, lent a real sense of authority to the work, which actually has that found manuscript, has that, you know, this is purporting to be a true story. It, it almost added that kind of judicial seal of approval to it. Yeah, and I think what his voice had a really nice youthful quality to it as well, which I think was really important not to sound too actorly and sonorous you know you don't want brian blessed reading that part you want a young actor whose his voice is there was a certain lightness and naivety in it uh so yes again i think he was spot on absolutely as soon as i heard him it's like yep yeah you can definitely do this and 
as with his bloody project and case study, the narration shared between two different actors. Um, so it's nice to flip between the voices. And I'm sure it maybe it makes a more interesting listening experience as well. Yeah, it certainly changes the perspective. and means you don't spend too much time with Collins Braithwaite, who is fascinating, but as, as you have written him, is is rather overbearing at times. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. rather as with a, a consultation with Collins Braithwaite, you need to close the door behind you and walk away. Uh, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And I think I probably in terms of the finished uh, book, about 70% of it is the notebooks and then there are the biographical sections. And I, I think in the writing process and listening to uh, my you know, very small number of people who read my work in progress, you know, making sure there's a balance of not expanding too much on the Collins Braithwaite sections. But, you know, I, w- I wanted them to be there as a kind of counterpoint to the narrator's own experiences and hopefully heighten those in some ways. Uh, Are you much of a fan of audiobooks yourself or do you still prefer to curl up with a paperback? I, I must admit that I am a more of a paperback person. It's it's partly because I used to work in bookshops and, um, you know, back in the day, I mean, uh, your listeners will be more aware of this than anyone. You know, you had to buy like a huge box of CDs or a box of tapes um, and it was extremely expensive. So the whole explosion of audiobooks since we've been able to download is absolutely fantastic. Not Not just for visually impaired people, but to provide people with a different way of engaging with a book, whether you you know you're in your car driving along, or you know, I, so I think I think it's a really exciting thing, and I actually I need to engage more with it myself. The only recently I was redecorating my hall and my bathroom, and I thought, right, I'm going to reread or re-listen to uh, some old Dostoevsky novels. So uh, I uh, downloaded The Devils and thought, oh, this is going to be so long. I didn't, I never finished it, but I was, it was kind of, I was enjoying the experience of listening to it. But I think maybe as with your experience with um, L'Etranger, I didn't find the narrator was quite right. He had quite a sort of, I know, maybe quite a sort of southern USA kind of accent. And it was like, it just felt wrong for a Russian novel. And it's like Stavrogin. Um, but I think I need to do more of it. Well, I hope that after this final break, you will share some of the books that you have enjoyed in paperback with the listeners in The Books of Your Life. I'll be very happy to do that. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. And to finish this week's show, I'm going to ask Graham McRae Burnett to share the books of his life. Graham, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, as a young child, there was a book which was in my grandmother's house. It's unfortunately completely out of print now. It was called Mr Papengay and the Little Round House. And it was by a woman called Marion St. John. And it was a very magical story about a little boy who goes to post a letter and then sort of falls inside the letterbox and finds himself in this world populated by Mr. Papagay and all these wonderful characters. And I think he's got some trouble escaping. And it's kind of like, it's very Kafka-esque. It's like Kafka for kids. Um, I suspect that it's out of print because it contains some sort of very politically incorrect language nowadays. Um, which I'm sure could be edited out for other readers. The other book I loved as as a child was Dr. Doolittle, um, Hugh Lofthouse's Dr. Doolittle books. I just loved the idea of being able to talk to the animals. I mean, uh, when I was a teenager, the two books that made me want to become a writer were, were The Catcher in the Rye and the book you mentioned earlier, L'Etranger or The Outsider by Albert Camus. And both of those books captivated me by the voice of the narrator. And I felt that I related to those books and that suddenly literature was something that was about me. You know, it wasn't something elsewhere or for other people. It was something I could engage with. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? I reread quite a lot. And um, I have been rereading some sort of French existential classics. I reread Simenon a lot because 
as a writer, I always learn from his brilliant prose style and the way he structures his narratives. Um, I'm actually rereading Crime and Punishment at the moment because Crime and Punishment is such a huge, capacious novel full of larger-than-life characters. Just It's a novel that totally teems with life and rewards rereading. You know, you can go back to it and there's little episodes you forget and you, you get very much inside the book. Uh, so Crime and Punishment is a book that I do return to more often than any other. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? A book that I read recently that really gripped me was uh, The Five by Harley Rubenhold. It's a book about the lives of the five women who were killed by Jack the Ripper. And it, it's just, it's a book that takes you into the poverty-stricken side of 19th century London. It's incredibly vivid, it's brilliantly researched, and it's just full of empathy and you know you feel it's a tremendous pity for the lives of these women who were absolutely not as they've been conventionally portrayed so it's a book that kind of turns the version of history you might think you know on its head and very gripping i love i love a bit of non-fiction i've also just reread the unbearable lightness of being by milan kundera um which i first read you know 30 years ago absolute masterpiece of course it's you know politically it's a little bit dodgy now but what a wonderful, wonderful novel. So I'd, I'd recommend both of those. Well, Graham McRae Burnett, thank you so much for sharing your love of literature with the listeners and for giving us some greater insight into your four amazing and rather mind-bending novels. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, Red. Thank you very much. Thanks again to my guest, Graham McRae Burnett and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.